News. 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 New York City. The FAQ NYC podcast getting more and more interesting by the minute. <laughs> FAQ. It's FAQ NYC coming at you from Brooklyn, New York, the planet. I'm Harry Siegel here with Professor Christina Greer. And joining us right now is State Senator Alessandra Biagi. Let's get right to it. Okay, so we've got Senator Alessandra Biagi here. I'm going to try not to have way too much fun because I can already tell that this is a podcast and I need to pull it together. So we're so excited to have you on the podcast. Uh, we want to talk about Governor Cuomo's book drop today. The book drop title, Harry Siegel, is... American Crisis, Leadership Lessons from the COVID-19 Pandemic, Asterix, at Halftime. At Halftime. Because, obviously, all great books that are going to talk about this moment, this really serious moment in our state's history, um, should be written and published, obviously, in the beginning of October, when we know that a second or third wave is coming, not just in eight neighborhoods across Brooklyn and Queens, but across the entire state. We're seeing spikes in the coronavirus in communities really diverse communities. So the, the governor is taking a victory lap. I would argue a premature victory lap. So we wanted to get your thoughts on uh, not just the book launch today, but how you feel the governor has handled this crisis <laughs> as someone who has been working in Albany quite closely to the governor, but I would say more specifically in conjunction with your colleagues to hold the governor mm-hmm. accountable in what is now his third term as governor of the state of New York. Thank you so much for this amazing way to begin this podcast. Thank you both for having me on. I am really excited to talk about this and other things today and just to be on here with you and have this conversation. Um, The governor's book (laughs) represents to me another example of how this administration wants to control the narrative and how the governor specifically wants to position himself um, as a leader that others should exemplify. I want to be really clear about the fact that in the beginning of this pandemic, this governor talked about how governors shouldn't do or don't do pandemics. And now, months later, we have this governor writing a book about how great he did in handling the pandemic. Um, I haven't obviously read the book yet. It just came out today. But I, what I will assume is that it probably paints a very narrow picture of how things went down in New York State. I would be probably surprised to find that it includes um, the number of lives that could have been saved. I'm sure that that probably is not included. Or how there was a delay for the shelter-in-place order or the drama that went down between the mayor and the governor in arguing about that delay in the shutdown or how um, the executive branch really made light of and how behind the scenes um, staff from the executive branch of government were making fun of the mayor of New York City and calling him a psycho and, and other very just disturbing terms when he actually was right to call on the shutdown of New York City at the time that he did. Um, I'm sure there's probably also not an inclusion in there of the mistake to allow COVID-positive patients to be returned to nursing homes, to be readmitted, or that while the nearly 2 million people um, who have lost their jobs in the state of New York um, have still been unemployed, don't have any meaningful way to pay their rent or their mortgage, and how we're basically on the brink of an eviction crisis. I'm sure that none of those things will be in there, but what will probably be in there 
um, are, you know, the most glowing aspects of how we brought our numbers down and how we flattened the curve, so to speak. Um, and to be honest with you, that is not the whole story. Um, and I'm sure finally what's not in there is the ability to, or the need to raise revenue in the state of New York, because we actually are in a fiscal crisis. We were, we were in one and a deficit before COVID hit. We had a $6.1 billion deficit. And now, our deficit is in the double-digit teen numbers, and I estimate that it probably will approach about a $20 billion deficit. And so I guess I'll look forward to uh, to reading it and seeing what is actually in there, but I'm sure none of those things that uh, are the reflection of reality or rooted to reality are included. I have a follow-up question, though, um, because, Senator, you have to work pretty closely with the governor. Mm-hmm. And what I've always been fascinated by during this crisis is the number of friends and family members who do not live in New York state who have called and texted and said, I love your governor. I so wish he was our governor. He's doing such an amazing job. And I was like, well, first of all, he's got the benefit of chit-chatting with his brother on TV every night Mm -hmm. um, and building a national audience. But as someone who's had to work closely with him, how is it that the governor has managed to maintain, I would say, this reputation of seemingly doing a really stand-up job, so much so that someone approached him to write a book about it. But we know that we were in a fiscal crisis beforehand. We know that there was mismanagement of New York state finances uh, before the the coronavirus hit New York state. So Mm -hmm. where is this disconnect? And working with him in Albany, how, I mean, I, I feel like this man knows more about New York state than any person living or dead. Like, I really, I, I think he's raising creativity. I think that's the it's only true. thing he knows. I think he's bored out of his mind because it's like, this is, this is, this is my castle. <laughs> Yogurt in prison. That's right. Right. But how is it that <laughs> New York State has more than yogurt in prison? I'm sorry. I know. But I know. how is it that he's managed to frame himself in such a way that so many people are ignoring the failures of his leadership style? And the crises in government that we experienced even before March and just ignoring facts and reality. This is, I think, a threefold answer. And I... Are you sure you're not an academic? (laughs) Part one, section two. Part one, exactly. And subpart A, let me tell you about why Andrew Cuomo actually is not a great governor. Okay. So first of all, the bar is very low, right? Why is the bar very low? We all know. Because we have a federal administration, specifically a president who is not a leader and has basically bungled this entire pandemic in addition to many other things. And so to have somebody even be above the bottom point is it, it what it feels like, I think, psychologically is very comforting. It feels like a warm blanket, like, oh my goodness, someone is actually doing the job that we all put them in office to do. And so that's a perfect storm, I think, of just unfortunate conclusions. But that's the first part. I think the second part is that this governor, and you really touched on it when you said that he really understands the state probably better than anybody else. He grew up in politics. He specifically grew up in the executive branch of our government because his father was the former governor. He understands the ins and outs of Albany, but he also understands how to communicate them. And so to be a master communicator is really a way to be as persuasive and manipulative as possible with your words. You will often notice, well, I will often notice because I've been paying very close attention when he speaks, that, you know, it is a very common thing for politicians or elected officials not to answer the question. 
But that's actually not what he's doing. He's not not answering the question. What he's doing is very much similar, actually, to what my predecessor did in a lot of our conversations. He he twists you and he turns you in a way that you know it makes no sense. It doesn't make any sense. I don't even you you can't construct the sentence in a way that can can make sense in your mind. And yet when he says it with confidence, people believe it or they shake their heads and they don't even know what they're shaking their heads to. And I, so I think that that's, uh, you know, the second piece of it. The third piece is that people are afraid of this man. They are terrified of him. And so what does that, what does that equate to? It equates to a lot of elected officials and a lot of people who are not elected, but are close to this administration, not speaking the truth when they know very well that there has been at least a decade of mismanagement of government, austerity budgets that have hurt the state, uh, lack of vision, political retribution that is so old, it's it's almost like I'm so sick and tired of talking about it. Like, you disagree with somebody, now I'm going to go to war with you. It's like that fragile ego aspect of it. But the fear, it overpowers almost everybody. And, you know, it's not to say that I, I don't acknowledge the fact that he has power He's the governor. Yes, he has power, but he's one human being. And there are so many of us and there are so many of us with the knowledge of what is actually going on. And it it does actually baffle my mind that that there isn't a collective understanding that if we just spoke about the realities of our government, it deflates the power from, you know, what feels like the Wizard of Oz, to be honest. And so I think the, the combination of those three things it's it's like a, an intoxication, I think, of the public that makes them almost drunk. Speaking of intoxication. <laughs> so part of this governor's uh, communications approach has, has been uh, uh, extremely hostile both to uh, the press and to lawmakers. And uh, the governor's secretary, Melissa DeRosa, uh, a couple of weeks ago when you were concerned about uh, how ballots were going out and uh, discussing that responded on Twitter publicly, uh, are you drunk? Get a grip. Is, is this how a governor and his office should be communicating? And why is this governor communicating that way? And then right after that, I think we'll get the power more broadly and how this is working sure. between the governor and lawmakers. Well, I mean, sure. it is so, the pandemic. So, I mean, are we drunk? I mean, <laughs> should we be drinking on this podcast? I'm, I'm just I'm tipsy. Like, it's no judging. Own, okay? <laughs> I'm like, all are you drunk? I'm like, who isn't outlet. drunk? It's a global pandemic, lady. <laughs> like, of course we're all drunk. <laughs> you should have written back like, yes, That's I am. <laughs> it's a pandemic. Sure. <laughs> I think, you know, oh my gosh. Okay, so first of all, the interesting part of the conversation or the the uh, communication on Twitter is that what you'll notice, or maybe perhaps people who are listening will now notice, is that the governor will actually never respond. He will never fight his own fights, and so that's a very um, interesting thing. And I actually think it's an Achilles heel of his. And you know, we can talk about that in further detail, but that's just my observation of him. I think that what her behavior, the secretary to the governor, Melissa DeRosa's behavior was. It's just indicative of this pattern that the Cuomo administration uses against anybody, doesn't matter who they are, who speaks truth to them. And it's it's so Trump-esque in so many different ways that to me, it's so transparent what's going on. But what 
is behind it. Why are we, you know, why do some of us do that? It's because it's important that the executive branch of our government understand that they're not untouchable and that anything that they say or that they do that could jeopardize the rights of New Yorkers will not go unchecked. And that is our job. That is why we are here. And it doesn't matter if our friend is doing something that we disagree with or, you know, someone who's considered an enemy. It's our job to call that out. And so it's important that we don't lose sight of that. I thought that, you know, the tweet itself, right, the actual attack on me is it's almost like a, um, a footnote because it's not my focus at all. My priority in sending out that message was to put all of my energy and attention on the issue that was in front of me, which was that we've got to make sure that every single New Yorker who is going to vote, who wants to vote, can actually exercise their right to vote. And any threat to that is not only dangerous, but it is it is devastating, right? And so safeguarding that right was my intention. And so the fact that it it resulted the way it did was there was humor for me at least in it but my I think my point got across right I think that it landed exactly where I wanted it to land which was take this seriously because now everyone's going to be paying attention to you withholding ballots for voters who got the wrong ballot in the mail and thankfully the board of elections did not follow the governor's um, suggestion they sent new ballots out to all the voters who received the wrong ballots, which is great. That's what we wanted to do. But this is just, you know, part of the pattern. And I'll just sub note that, which is that this is not the first time this has happened to myself or to others. Last year, when we called the governor out for fundraising during the budget season with his budget director with, you know, tickets for $25,000 a couple, we had the governor's press person call us, quote unquote, fucking idiots. I mean, in what other place in the world, I guess, besides the Trump administration, is that kind of behavior permissible and nobody has held accountable? It's, it's, it's very sloppy. And I think what it really makes me feel is like we've got to, we've got to, as New Yorkers, expect and demand more from the people who are representing us. We need people who are going to have the highest levels of integrity who are going to communicate cleanly and, and in a way that is effective. And also, we are in a moment where we need emotional intelligence in our leaders. And that is not what we are getting at the moment. Did you register any of this when you were a lawyer in the executive chamber? Or, or is this, you know, in your position now as a member of a co-equal branch of government? And then I, I hope we're going to talk about how those branches relate and, and your bill to, to adjust that and the sure. big ugly. But did, did you get a taste of this at all when you were serving in the administration that way? Yes. And it's actually one of the reasons why I ran, because being in that chamber, I mean, I joined because I thought New York was so progressive and so amazing and great. And the bill that came onto my desk was the Reproductive Health Act, which would codify Roe v. Wade. And I thought it was like, no brainer, right? We're going to do everything we can to get this done because the Trump administration spends every day trying to roll back a woman's right to choose. And the games and the tricks and like the sleights of hand that were going on were so just, they were so the antithesis of what I stand for. It, it made me be full of rage enough to challenge my own state senator because he was part of this cabal of people who just put themselves first and didn't actually put the people first. And so I saw it. I also, you know, this is, this might not be central to, to answering the question, but it's related. Part of being in a team or working for an executive or a leader is the culture of where you work. 
And one of the things I will never forget for the rest of my life, because now I can reflect on it and laugh about it, even though at the time it was incredibly painful, was I was in my office in the executive chamber one day and I was at my desk and someone was laughing down the hallway. And for a minute or a second, really a split second, I thought to myself, like, what is that noise? And what that sat with me and felt like was a feeling of like, I have to get out of here because there is a lack of joy. There's a lack of camaraderie. There's a lack of team. There's a lack of connection in the culture of this executive branch of government because everything that everybody does is from a place of fear. Fear of getting called out for whatever it is you're going to say. Fear of being yelled at fear of whatever it might be. And that was a very sad moment, but it, it stays with me because it is, again, the antithesis of the culture that I'm trying to build in, in my team. Part of what we do every day is we, of course, are serving the public, but we got to have some fun doing it too. This is serious work. And if you put some joy into it, you can become a better leader. That was lacking, I think, in a very unfortunate way there. Well, it's interesting because before you and your colleagues sort of, I would say, staged these series of electoral coups around the <laughs> the city, uh, I used to call Albany a cesspool of degenerates <laughs> just because yeah. the, the, the amounts of grift and the sexual misconduct that we've seen from state senators and state legislators over the years right. has just been obscene. Uh, and I always I keep telling Harry, I'm like, I need you, not me, I need Harry to write the book on how Andrew Cuomo and Donald Trump and even de Blasio low-key are very similar. Their behaviors, their leadership styles, their communication styles, their bullying, their lack of ability to listen to people around them, smart or not. You know, there's a mo we're in a moment right now where our leadership is mimicking one another. And I think the frustration that so many New Yorkers feel is that we have a mayor and a governor who cannot seem to get together on anything and my fear was always that people would lose lives. You know, it's one thing to talk about canceling a, a subway. It's another thing to, to think about coronavirus and how we're going to disseminate information, goods, and resources. Yeah. And now we're seeing the loss of life. But Andrew Cuomo That's is right. the executive. And so, you know, sort of like having an older older sibling. It's like, you're the oldest. <laughs> like, you've been here longer. Yes. You got more money. You got more resources. You have to take responsibility. Even if your younger sibling is messing up, like, you have to sort of set an example. And he just... Is, is incapable of doing that. But I want to sort of drill down a little bit more to what you're doing in some of the committees with the resources that you do have and what sure. are some of the coalitions you're building with your colleagues, especially some of your newer colleagues who kind of rolled into town similarly to the way you did, which is, I'm unhappy with this leadership. I'm disgusted by the, the inaction in Albany this person has been here X number of years or terms, and they haven't really produced for our, our respective communities. And I would argue, what, six of you kind of came to town all under 40? Right. Like, they're new sheriffs. That's right. Period, dot, end. Like, here's what we're going to do. That's right. And like... <laughs> yes. Like, I mean... This is what it is. We came in like gangbusters. Literally like, gangbusters. <laughs> like, gangbusters. Yes. And like, yes. when I say that, it's like, because we're busting up gangs up here. Like you guys Yo, are kind of like yes. thug life living, <laughs> running gangs up here. So 100%, I can verify that is correct. <laughs> so when I think about, you know, Jessica Ramos or Zellner Myrie, you know, or the work that you're doing, can you talk a little bit more about what is happening 
and some of the coalitions you're building yeah. with the with the new gang or with some of the old guard to kind of fight some of the the strong winds that Andrew Cuomo produces. Hundred percent, yes. And by the way, if you ever write that book about those, anal- it's Harry, those Harry analogies, it's <laughs> um, you can, you can, Harry, if you can interview me all day, every day, please, on the record, whatever I can do to be helpful about that, because that is a very terrifying reality. And so I'm here for it. Okay. So I mean, we've been building probably every single day since we won the coalition of like the inside outside game, right? So that's a huge part, I think, of passing policies or getting anybody to move on an issue. And part of where I've been so focused on um, is the budget process, because the budget process in the state of New York, which for those who don't know, March is what we call like budget month. And we usually pass the budget on time at the end of March. Um, It is a very stressful month. It's like a seven day a week, 24 hour a day kind of month. But the reality, unfortunately, is that the budget process does not really give the legislative branch of government equal power to the executive. And so what I have been really focused on is rebalancing those powers and creating a structure that is actually co-equal, right? A co-equal branch of government is what our democracy was created on. And so I introduced uh, this year with Assemblymember Gottfried something called the Budget Equity Act. And essentially, the Budget Equity Act would amend the New York State Constitution to correct a very severe structural imbalance in the budget process and give the legislature a fair share of bargaining power by putting us on equal footing with the executive. So why is that important and what am I even talking about? Well, as it stands right now, our highest court, which is the New York State Court of Appeals, has an interpretation from a court case called Silver v. Pataki of the New York State Constitution that gives the executive branch almost unilateral control over the state budget process. And so the way that it plays out very practically is this. The legislature can add new items that are separate from what is included in the governor's proposed budget, meaning we can add a provision, we can add you know whatever we want in there, but the legislature cannot modify any of the governor's existing items, right? Not to mention anything that the legislature would like to add in. For example, if let's say the governor has left out foundation aid, which is how we fund our schools, we would want to add that in. We wouldn't necessarily be able to do that. And so why? Because every single item has to be approved by the governor. And obviously, if you're someone who is used to taking the control and using that control to your advantage, you're not going to relinquish control to the legislature. And so here's how it has played out. If the governor proposes an appropriation of a million dollars for NYCHA, but our communities need $2 million, right? Instead of just increasing that appropriation item, the legislature would have to add an additional appropriation of a million dollars. But again, because the governor has that final say, the legislature really does not have an ability to override the executive's decision and the governor can easily veto any added funding. And so we have to revert back to the original proposal, which is obviously not meeting the needs of the community. And so there's there's a lot more that's tied up there. But by enacting the Budget Equity Act, the legislature would not only be able to reduce or eliminate or add a new item, it would be given the power to modify the governor's existing items so we could swap out or substitute something. We could increase or decrease the amount of money. Um, We could change the policy behind it. And 
to me, that's how we get those imbalanced uh, powers back to some type of equipoise so we can actually serve the needs of our community because there is no body of government, I think, more best suited to represent the voices of the, of the people than the legislature because we're on the ground. We are so local to what we know our communities need. And it's not to say that an executive cannot do that, but they are at a higher level of government. And so it is unusual or not really, I think, as possible or as, as, as good as having a legislator say, well, actually, there is a problem with, you know, our parks. Let me tell you about it. Or there's a problem with our school funding. Let me tell you about it. You don't feel that same impact when you're at that high level of government. And so this is a priority, but I'll just share that this is a bill that has to pass two consecutive legislative sessions. And then it would go to the public for a referendum or for a vote. And so we really missed our opportunity this year, unfortunately, even though we fought really hard to bring it to the floor. Um, but we will be fighting for it to come to the floor next year so that we can actually make sure that we pass the bill in the next legislative session. And there are the new legislators, by the way, who are already ready to sign on to that bill once they come into office. So that's a big deal. And to your point, Dr. Greer, that's a very big difference, I think, than what we saw even three years ago in Albany, where people didn't even, they didn't use their political capital, some of them never in their entire life. Um, now they're not, you know, we have this whole amazing crop of, of people who are going to come in. They haven't even been sworn in yet. And they're using everything they have to do the right thing. That's transformational. And those numbers have been growing in both houses, there's a chance of a veto-proof majority in the Senate, which may or may not significantly change things. Look, it's $177 billion, like big ugly. It's just a mind-popping number. And then lots of the lawmaking sausage gets done with the budget all mushed up together. But That's I did right. want to ask you sort of in the other direction um, with the about the governor's new emergency powers and how you think he's handling those so far and, and, and how that process is going with the uh, with the virus. He has budget wise and otherwise all sorts of emergency power with the legislature, I think pretty nominally having a veto over some of them, but effectively giving authority to the governor, given the circumstance we're in. <sighs> this has been, I think, the hardest part of this moment, because it's not something that a majority of New Yorkers knows. And so how does that translate? Well, when I get a call from a constituent who needs help on something that's a very big issue, or if there's a coalition of people in the district that need help, saying to them that the governor has this enormous amount of power, they don't really care. They're like, how can you help me solve my problem? And what are we going to do to fix it? And so in this period of time, the governor has accumulated an outsized source and level of power during the pandemic. And I think it's unprecedented in our state's history, and I would probably even argue that it's unprecedented in the country's state legislative history. Um, there are three branches of government for a reason, and so it really does make zero sense that in a democracy um, that prides itself on checks and balances, or at least that alleges it prides itself on checks and balances, that this practice is really lost in one of the most important times that we've ever, I think, experienced as a country, forget about a state, since March 7th, 
When the pandemic was first declared a state of emergency in New York, the governor's powers have reached a height that has allowed him since, I believe, August 31st of this year is the last time that this number was checked, to change 250 laws or suspend 250 laws to pass 65 executive orders, one of which was the order to require COVID-positive patients to be readmitted into nursing homes. Listen, I like I am someone who can be open-minded even in the face of people that I disagree with or dislike. I understand the extenuating circumstances that we are in right now and that we were in in the beginning of this pandemic. However, the responsibility of passing laws and creating and drafting policy is a power that is sacred to the legislature. If the legislature is not passing laws then what is our job? What is our purpose? What is the point of us doing the job that we're doing? I mentioned earlier, but I'll say it again. The legislature is the branch that is the most directly connected to the majority of New Yorkers. And yet a majority of the governor's directives have really circumvented the legislative process. And that's dangerous. And it has severely limited the powers of the legislature. And it's scary. And I think that it should scare more people because it's not the way that a democratic or a democracy is supposed to work. And I think that the national attention that the governor is getting for handling this crisis has really distracted, I think, from his overreach, which is another just dangerous point of this. And so instead, you know, the national media attention and Dr. Greer, you, you hit on such a really important point that people from other states are, are calling and saying, oh my gosh, I wish my governor was just like this. I, I can't believe you're so lucky and this is amazing. And look how New York has handled this crisis. That is so damaging because it just reaffirms the executive's role as New York's dominant figure on questions of policy and governance. And it ignores this really bloated power that he's amassed. And it's not lost on me, even though you know the New Yorker article is not giving credence to this, but there's a New Yorker article today that is actually calling the governor the king of New York. And that's a very fitting title because the way that this administration has behaved is as a monarch. It's a very centralized amount of power in one person. And that is not a democracy. So... <laughs> We'll clearly need to have you back on because we've got so much to discuss. Um, let's bring it a little more local. So you spend a lot of time in Albany, obviously, but your main base is sort of Westchester and part of the Bronx. Mm -hmm. And you have dipped your toe into the 2021 mayor's race, I would argue, <laughs> uh, because you are supporting whom? Scott Stringer, the comptroller. The of New York City. The Comptroller yes. of New York City. And so there have been That's lots right. of articles which, you know, as a political scientist, I'm like, eh, I don't find these terribly interesting. You know, it does New York need another white mayor? You know, and, and as someone who studies descriptive and substantive representation, I don't care if you're white, if you're going to do the work, right? Like if you have a diverse coalition yeah. of people, then I don't care what you are. You know, I'd much rather a white person who works on behalf of black people than a black person who doesn't know any black people. I mean, that's just my personal preference as a political scientist and a black voter. Mm -hmm. So it does seem, though, that our controller has been able to amass quite a bit of a, when I say diverse coalition, I mean diversity mm -hmm. in the truest sense of the word. He's yes. got some young whippersnappers. <laughs> He's got some young <laughs> rabble rousers. I'm not going to say yes. any names, but it also seems, so it seems as though he's, putting together this coalition of racial and ethnic diversity, 
mm-hmm. obviously some gender diversity there. But uh, he has a reputation of someone who's been in the game for a very long yeah. time, who's wanted this for a very long time. Some people argue mm-hmm. that that's not a bad thing since we've now seen what happens when you have a mayor who doesn't really want it. That's right. <laughs> so it's like maybe he likes mm-hmm. to do more than campaigning. Yep. So what do you say to people who ask you, well, why is it that you're supporting this kind of traditional candidate who's been in the game forever? There are lots of women in the race or who will be in the race. There are interesting people who will possibly jump in the race. Why have you already cast your lot with someone like Scott Stringer, who in many ways is a traditionalist? He has been in politics for a long time. And some people might argue that he is part of the problem, right? And not necessarily Mm -hmm. part of the solution. What do you say to those folks who ask why you're there? So a few things. Uh, First and foremost, what the comptroller represents to me, and I'll just call him Scott because that's what I call him. What Scott represents to me is someone who cares so much about New York City and has spent his whole life understanding how New York City works and wanting to lead New York City and wanting to direct New York City and make New York City the best city in the world, which I think a lot of us do believe it is because it is the best city in the world. And the moment that we're in right now allows for him to be the steady hand in recovery. We have got to make sure that in 2021, We are electing someone who has a vision for not only how to recover New York, but the vision of the future of New York City, the future of how New York can actually compete with a lot of other cities around the world who have really lapped us in terms of infrastructure and technology and green energy and all of the things that we care so much about. In addition to that, for me, what's very personal about Scott is that He is someone who has repeatedly taken all of his political capital to do the right thing, no matter what time it is, whether it's inconvenient for him or convenient for him. And how that has shown up for me is not only very locally with, you know, Bronx politics, the Bronx machine, which, you know, we could do a whole probably three hours on that because there's so much that goes on there. But anytime that I have called on him to show up, for a fight, whether it's to make sure that we pass the sexual harassment reform in Albany or call for legislative hearings on sexual harassment or call out certain bad actors in our city council or our state government or get behind leaders that we need to be those leaders of this moment, even if it didn't on the surface look like it was something that would quote unquote benefit him, he didn't care. He cared about how it would impact the state, how it would impact the city, and more importantly, how it would impact New Yorkers. I have really not ever seen someone do something like that. There are very few people. I think Assemblywoman New is someone who is very similar in that way, where she will sacrifice herself for the greater good. It's so rare. It is so rare, and yet he embodies it. And it's it's amazing. (laughs) And it's something that I will, someone and something that I will stand behind because a lot of people have a lot of power in this city and state and they do not use it for good. In fact, they, they bottle it up and maybe they'll use it one time in their entire political career, but that's not 
what Scott has done. He's used it repeatedly. And in this very short period of time being here, 20 months, I will tell you that after four months of being in Albany, you could see people change. You could see them not really want to speak up in that conference room, not really want to vote against something, not really want to push back against leadership. That's dangerous. That is the most dangerous place that we could be in. And it's also why I really value my independence and, and cherish and, and protect it so much. And it's, a, it's amazing to me that after 30 plus years in government, he still has that. I mean, I struggled with that in the first year. How am I going to protect this? What am I going to do? How am I going to make sure that I'm still me and don't lose myself? I mean, that's, it's, it's something to admire. And I think it's something that will allow him to push back on whatever or whatever entity or person is trying to have outsized power over New York City, i.e. the governor, um, or to protect the city from a lot of the harms that we know are happening to it. Like, for example, the lack of affordable housing, the homelessness crisis that, my God, in the, in the most wealthy city in the world, this is insane. I mean, the, the food insecurity, all those things, I won't go into the details of it, but the point is someone who can maintain that center and that's who he is. Closing 90 seconds. And thank you so much for taking the time. It's 2022. Scott Stringer is the mayor. I remember Bill de Blasio becoming the mayor in 2014 mm -hmm. and feeling like he had political capital to spend. He was going to get this millionaire's tax. He had a mandate. Scott has these young progressives behind him. There's another election in Albany that year. Uh, is this do you see this significantly changing the balance of power in Albany and affecting how you can do your job if he yes. comes in that way? I do, actually, um, mainly because what I don't ever want anyone to lose sight of is the fact that what is the essence of this this group of people that are, I think, behind him, but just in a broader sense, um, putting him to the side for one second, is that part of what is the power source that drives us is no matter who is leading at the time, we are there to call out what is good and call out what is bad. And it doesn't change if that person in power is your friend. And I think that's a really important part of leading. It's very easy as a Democrat to call out a Republican and say, that's very bad. I disagree with you. You're not right. It becomes harder, at least in the older generation, for leaders to call out people in their own party. And guess what? That's the only way we're going to transform our city and state and world. And so him being in that seat um, is not only just the way I think we can benefit our districts in a more impactful way, because this administration struggles, I think, with having that connection or, or that relationship but it also allows us to have a really powerful voice that can say no to a very powerful executive because of the power of New York City and stepping into that and really living in that space and not backing down and, and thinking creatively, just like how this governor has thought about what are the laws and loopholes that I can use to use power for myself. It could be done alternatively in the city by saying, what are, what's the way that we can actually use New York City's power in Albany to demand the respect and the resources and, and the leadership that we actually need. And so 
I see it as that. And I'll tell you right now, if it's not that, you will be hearing very loudly from me publicly because it's what we need. And it doesn't, again, it doesn't matter who is in that seat. What matters is that we are actually making this state reach its highest potential, which it will never reach with this executive at the state level. So uh, you want to make any announcements or something right now? <laughs> I don't. Okay. <laughs> but I, what I will say is, what I will say is stay tuned because there are some, there are some thoughts on the horizon. I think what I want everyone to, to feel deeply is that we are out of time and there's an urgency that is going to call us to do things that are going to make us very uncomfortable and are going to really test the limits of our leadership. And if we're not willing to do that, then honestly, we should all go home. All right. Well, we don't mind uncomfortable moments here on FAQ NYC. So if you ever want to announce any uncomfortable moments, feel free to join us. Thank I'm you so happy much. To have you, Senator. Um, okay. <laughs> you've been listening to Senator Alessandra Biaggi, and something tells me this is not the last time you'll be hearing from her. We appreciate your public service. We appreciate what you and your colleagues are doing for us in Albany and fighting constantly. So promise you'll come back and join us at some point, whether we're announcing things or not. I would love to. There's so much to talk about, Dr. Greer. Maybe we should all have a book club. Maybe we should have an Andrew Cuomo book club and read all of Andrew Cuomo's books. And then we should come back and discuss them. (laughs) Chapter by chapter. Well, considering uh, the people he works with think, you know, we're all drunk. So maybe it should be like a a drunken book club. (laughs) Sort of what's the the show on Comedy Central, Harry? Um, drunken history. Drunken history. Maybe it should be drunken, drunken Cuomo, and we just read Cuomo books and <laughs> drink. We'll see. Hey, listen. I'll, I'll come bringing my kombucha. Yeah, it's it's a pandemic. Like anything goes. Right. Um, well, that's it's fermented, right. so you know. <laughs> it, it does give you a little. It does a little buzz. Kombucha can do that. Yeah. <laughs> oh goodness! Thank you so much. Thank really. you all. Thank, Thank you, you so Thank much, you. Senator. We so appreciate you. F- FAQ. NYC is a production of Racket Media and a proud member of the Brickhouse Cooperative of Independent Journalists and Artists. We used to record at NYU's McSilver Institute for Poverty, Policy, and Research, but for now, we're just on the internet. A special thanks to State Senator Alessandra Biaggi for joining us this week. Our executive producer is Alex Brooklyn. And Adam Kamara sliced, diced, and chopped this week's episode. Stay safe, wear a mask, and we'll talk to you next week. Bye.